The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I figured out in the course of life that one of the most dangerous, offensive questions you can ask people is why. (laughs) Why do you do this or why do you not do that? Uh, Because many times people don't know why or their motivations are not good. And so it is a dangerous question to ask. And I want to start with a why question this morning. My question is, why are you here this morning? What, What was it that compelled you to come to church today? Either to decide last night or this morning, okay, we're going to go to church this week. What compelled you to come here? Was it because a parent makes you come to church? Is it because your spouse makes you come to church? Is it because you want to earn brownie points with God and so you say, God, I will come to church as long as you will make my life easy or safe or you will give me this or make me well? Do you come to church primarily to see friends, to see a cute boy or a cute girl? Why do you come to church. What is the reason you come to church? Many of those are good benefits of coming to church, but what is the primary reason for coming to church? There's a story of a great evangelist. His name is Lyman Beecher Stowe. And he was a famous evangelist who had many, many children. And he tells a story in his book called Saints, Sinners, and Beechers. He said on one occasion, his son Henry was scheduled to preach at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. Now, Henry was a fairly famous guy. He was a traveling preacher, a social reformer. One newspaper even called him the most famous man in America. And so he was coming to preach at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. As you could imagine, the community stirred as they considered this guy coming. Many new faces came to church that morning. But to their disappointment, Henry was not there. I don't know what kept him, if he got sick or was hindered in some other way, but he asked his brother to preach, his brother Thomas, to come and substitute in for him. As Thomas came up to the pulpit and began to preach, as people started to see that it wasn't Henry that was going to preach, but it was going to be Thomas many people started to get up and head for the exits. As Thomas saw this, he raised his hand in attention and he announced this. He said, all who have come here today to worship Henry Ward Beecher may now withdraw from the church. All who have come to worship God, keep your seats. We come to worship on Sunday mornings The primary reason, the focus is to worship God, to give God the worship and honor that he is due. There are many benefits to coming to church, but that is the primary reason that we come. That is what we were created to do. It is what our soul delights in. It's what we are commanded to do. In the Psalms, Psalm 95 We read, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And so we gather together on Sunday mornings for the primary purpose 
of worshiping God, of meeting with God, of delighting God, and singing his praises, hearing from his word. If you would, please open your Bibles to John chapter 12. Um, We are going to look at verses 1 through 11 again. Uh, The last time I preached two weeks ago, we read this passage, and we started down this path of looking at this beautiful expression of pure worship from Mary. We're going to continue to go down that path and to expound on this worship. But I just want to give you a little bit of the context again, just to remind you. Just before this, in chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha, who are all three very important people in today's passage. The Jewish leaders felt threatened by Jesus because many of the Jews that were there that saw Lazarus raised from the dead started believing in Jesus. Others of them went to go tell on Jesus, and so they felt threatened by him, that they might dethrone, that Jesus might dethrone them from their positions of power and prominence. And that, that he might somehow, by his popularity, invoke the Roman army to come and destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. And so they were afraid. They agreed, that the, the Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin, they agreed that it is better that one man should die, even if he is innocent. That one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And it says, so from that day on, the Sanhedrin made plans to put Jesus to death. And so Jesus no longer walked openly. And they gave a command, a mandate, that if anyone knew where Jesus was, if anyone knew that they should report him to them immediately. And so that is the context that we are in. You can see this hostility growing between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so let's continue to read John chapter 12. It's page 898 in the Red Bible, page 1321 in the children's Bible. We will read verses 1 through 11 again. John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that your word is timeless, and it is timely. 
you have given us these two Sundays to focus on worship and what worship is. And we don't think there's any mistake, God. There is work that you have to do in our heart, God, to give us a purity in our worship, Lord, not only on Sundays, but throughout the week, Lord. And so, God, we pray you would work mightily on our hearts this morning, both for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Mary gives probably the most beautiful account of worship that we see in the Gospels. And last time, just to review, we said that pure worship is constant, contrite, and costly. So just to review those very quick, pure worship is constant. Mary wasn't in a synagogue. It wasn't a Sabbath day morning. She was in her house at night when she worshiped the Lord. All times we can worship God. We have the opportunity every moment of every day either to worship the good things that God gave to us or to worship the God who gave us good things. And so worship is to be constant. Pure worship is to be contrite. Mary falls at the feet of Jesus, wipes his dirty feet with her hair and perfume. We too are to fall at the feet of Jesus, to learn from him, to submit to him, and to follow him. And pure worship is costly. It costs us our rest. We see Martha serving the Lord in worship. It costs us our security. The Sanhedrin commands Jesus is to die, that they are to report him, but they don't. Instead, they worship him. And it costs us our treasure as she pours out this excessive, outlandish, costly perfume. A year's wages worth of perfume gone in minutes. And so pure worship is not only constant, contrite, and costly, but today we will also see that pure worship is received, it's reflective, and it's responsive. So let's start with receive. Pure worship is received. What does that mean? In this passage, again, you see this extravagant worship by Mary. It is excessive. It seems to ignore the poor. Judas even says, why don't we sell this for 300 denarii, a year's wage, and we could give it to the poor. Now we know that wasn't Judas's motivation, but the question is, why don't we sell it and give it away? What we see here is that Jesus looks at this excessive celebration, this excessive worship, and he defends it. He comes to Mary's defense. Jesus says in verse 7, very simply, leave her alone. And Jesus not only defends this woman's worship, But in the other accounts of this, in the other gospel passages, he actually says something even more exalting about it. In Matthew 26.10, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. When we gather, when we worship the Lord on Sunday mornings or throughout the week, it is beautiful to our Savior. This word could also be translated, she has done a good or a valuable or a praiseworthy or a commendable or a precious thing to me. The Gospel of Matthew and Mark account for this party also include another interesting detail that John decided to pass over. We read in Matthew and Mark, I'll read from Matthew 26, 13. It says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done 
will also be told in memory of her. This is an amazing promise that Christ gives, which actually we are fulfilling as we talk about it. This is a promise that Christ gives to no other person in the scriptures that when the gospel is told, that her story will be told along with it. And the question is why? Why is it that Jesus says the story of this woman and what she has done will be told to everyone who hears the gospel? And the reason is, is because this worship is a picture of the worship that we are to offer to God. As we look through the attributes of this worship, it is a worship that is to be applauded in all ages by all people because it is beautiful to our Savior. Time again in the New Testament, Jesus receives worship gladly. You know, he comes to Bethany and they throw him this this party as we read at the beginning of the chapter. I don't know about you, but I feel a little bit squeamish about people throwing me a party to, to praise me and to, to honor me. It, it just, I, I get a little bashful. Jesus doesn't at all. He receives the worship that is given to him. He never rebukes a single person who worships him. He receives worship. In the Old Testament, God commands us time and again to worship him and him alone. Exodus thirty four fourteen says, for you shall worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Last night, we were doing our Bible time with our kids before they went to bed, and I said to my kids, is jealousy a good thing or a bad thing? And all of them said, it's a bad thing. Right? We tip, when we hear the word jealousy, we think jealousy is a bad thing. And many of the times it is. Usually when we are jealous, usually it is a bad thing, right? Because we are jealous for things that do not belong to us. And so if someone is jealous for, if Joe, which is, if Joe is jealous for his brother's riches, it is sinful and wrong because those riches do not belong to Joe. They belong to his brother, and God had ordained that. But if Joe is jealous for his wife's affection and attention, it is a good thing because Joe's wife belongs to him and he belongs to her. And it is good for him to be jealous. It is a righteous jealousy to want the captivation of your spouse. And so we see God has this righteous jealousy for us. He is jealous for you. He is jealous for your worship because you were created by him and you belong to him. It is hard to believe, but God is jealous for you. When you worship on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings or Saturday through or Monday through Saturday, whenever you worship, God not only receives it, God not only delights in it, God is jealous for it. He is seeking your worship. He delights in your worship. And so if you are here and you feel small, if you feel insignificant, like you are worth nothing to God, God is jealous for you. He's jealous for you. More than, and more than your spouses, if you're married, more than your best friend is, more than your parents are, God is jealous for you. He is jealous for your heart. He is jealous for your worship. And so we see pure worship is received. It is never a waste. You are never worshiping into thin air. It is something that God delights in 
and receives. We also see pure worship is reflective. Through the last chapter, we see Mary and Martha praising Jesus. Martha comes up to Jesus and says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Mary, of course, pours this extravagant um, uh, perfume on Jesus. Lazarus, interesting enough, doesn't say a word the whole time, or at least no words are recorded. His actions aren't really recorded other than he sat at the table. He, he waddled out of the tomb. But we don't really see much of what Lazarus did to worship the Savior. But we do see the effect of it. Whatever he did, whatever he said, it reflected the Savior to those who came to see him. Look with me in verse 9. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he was raised from the dead. This would have, the, the news spread quickly. This would have been worldwide front page news. News sources would fly people out if it was today to come and cover this man who had been dead for four days and was raised from the dead. Verse 11 says, because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So whatever Lazarus did, whatever Lazarus said, his testimony evidently pointed to the Lord. He did not discredit the Lord, but he pointed all of the glory to Christ and people trusted in him. Lazarus was a walking billboard. He was living evidence. He was a reflection of the power and person and love of Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you, Christian, you who were once dead, but made alive by Jesus Christ, by his grace, are you a walking billboard for our Savior? Are you living evidence of what he can do in a person's life, reflecting his power and glory to others? There's a uh, person in our church, I won't name who it is because I know they will be embarrassed. But a few months ago, they gave me a phone call and said, hey, um, this guy is going to be coming to church tomorrow and his wife. Oh, great. What's their name? I I don't know their name. Okay. Um, How did you meet them? Well, we were doing some business together. It was me and and he and his partner and, and we were doing some business together and and I don't know what happened. I mean, I didn't share the gospel. I, didn't, I wasn't trying to share my faith or anything like that. But after the meeting was over, he came to me and, and said, hey, are you a Christian? And this man said, yes. And he goes, can I come to your church? And he said, yes. He's like, I, I don't know what happened. I was befuddled. I don't understand why this man knew I was a Christian. I mean, I just did what I always do. I talked about how God has provided for us, how in in the lean years we will trust in God for his provision. We will trust that he will provide for our companies, for the families. I just was being me. There's a great quote, and um, maybe you should write it down, pin it on your window, whatever. I think it's an amazing quote. I don't know who this guy is. I just love the quote. The quote goes like this. Worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshipped. 
Let me read that again. Worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshiped. That businessman that I was talking about, he doesn't worship money. He doesn't worship his, his elite level. He's not worshiping any of those things. He's worshiping Christ. And when you worship Christ, you become made into the image of Christ. You are conformed into the image of Christ. And it reflects that to a watching world. And so let me ask you another question. What are you all about? What are you all about? If, if I asked your friends and they were honest to me, if I asked those that were closest to you, I said, what is Susie all about? What is Pete all about? What would they say? Would they say, you know, Pete is all about the Packers. You know, he dresses in Packers. He speaks Packers. He's all about the Packers. Susie is all about her family. They're all about the lake house. They're all about boys. They're all about girls. They're all about money. They're all about vacation or they're all about their job. They're all about education. What would they say you are all about? It might be a scary but good question to ask your best friend. What would you, if you were honest with me, what would you say I'm all about? Because the chances are what that is might be your biggest idol. That thing might be that which you worship because worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worship. You have probably heard me say, you are an evangelist. Every person is an evangelist for the thing they most unashamedly cherish. I think we could tweak that and say, everyone is an evangelist for the thing they most unashamedly worship. Worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshiped. And so we reflect what we worship. You've heard it said, you are what you eat. Maybe it would be better to say, you are what you worship. And so our primary goal in life, both individually but as a church corporately, is not to reflect Jesus. Our primary purpose is to worship the Trinitarian God. And as we worship him, the fruit of that is that we will reflect him to a watching world. And so pure worship is received by God. It is reflected to a watching world. And finally, we see pure worship is responsive. We started with the question, why are you here today? And we said, hopefully, Lord willing, our hearts come to worship God. But even to go a layer deeper, let me ask you, why are you here to worship God? Because I think you could ask a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu, why do you come to worship? They would say, we are here to worship God. But if you ask them, why do you come to worship God? you should get a unique response from the Christian. You should say, I come in response to what God has done. Not to earn his favor, not to get brownie points, not, not so that he will like me or, or cherish me or save me or help me because he does that apart from my work. I come in response to what he has already done for me. We see that here in this passage. Look in verse one with me. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
So they, it can also be translated, it's kind of hidden here, but it can be translated, therefore, or consequently, because he raised Lazarus from the dead, they gave a dinner for him there. The dinner was a response to the grace and mercy and love and power and work of Jesus Christ to raise Lazarus from the dead. It was given as a thank you. They did not throw the dinner to try to get something from Jesus. They certainly weren't trying to get riches. They were pouring their riches out. They weren't trying to get favor with him. They already had it. They gave it to him as a response to his love for them. Christian worship is responsive. We don't do it to earn anything with God. We do it to respond to what he has already done for us, what he's doing today in us, and what he will do in the future as he has promised. We even see this in Mary's worship. She is lavishing on Jesus this perfume. Again, Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. We're not, the the Greek, the original language is a little confusing, so we're not sure if he's saying, let her keep pouring it out or keep it for the day when I'm buried. It doesn't matter. But what we do see is that Mary understands something that none of the disciples seem to get. Because all of the disciples, the other gospel accounts tell us, the disciples are all disgruntled that she's pouring out this perfume. But Mary somehow, a woman's intuition, I don't know what it is, she gets what Jesus has been trying to tell them for years. She gets that Jesus is going to the cross to die for her. You know, she probably did this Saturday night, Friday, Sunday, somewhere in there. And so you think Jesus was crucified Friday. And so four to six days later, I mean, when he was hanging on the cross and you had this tremendous amount of perfume on you. I don't know if he took a shower or what, but I'm guessing as he hung on the cross, he could smell this sweet aroma of this woman who loved him and worshiped him and knew what he was going to do. We ask the question, why do you come to worship God? Why do we do something that is so costly for our time and our efforts and our money? And what we see here from Mary, which is, which is very important, is the motivation for worship. Mary was able to display her love for Jesus at great cost to herself because she had in view the costliness of Jesus' love for her. Do you see that motivation? It's responsive. She was able to to worship Jesus at great cost to herself because she saw what it would take for Jesus to love her. She saw the cost that he was going to pay because he was jealous for her, because he loved her, because she was his treasure. And so this this was not excessive to her at all. This was just a shadow of the price Christ was going to pay to redeem her. You know, worshiping God is kind of like bending metal, all right? Whether it's on Sunday mornings or it's throughout the week, do you ever just have a cold heart and you're like, God, I, I just don't want to worship you. I, I'm not in the mood. I don't want to do it. I, my heart is, is a stone. How do we get our hearts to melt before the Lord? How do we get the heart to worship God purely, truly like we want to? 
Well, you take metal, right? And if it's cold, you can try to bend it into a certain shape. But if it's cold, you, you may not be able to do it. It's probably almost impossible to do unless you have machines. But if you do bend it, it weakens the metal. It sometimes breaks. It cracks, right? But if you warm the metal up, put a blowtorch, whatever it might be, if you warm the metal up, it softens and it becomes moldable and bendable. How do we warm up our hearts that our hearts might mold into a shape of worship? By remembering what Christ has done for us, by responding to his love for us poured out on the cross, by remembering what he has done at the cross, what he is doing today in conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ and providing for you and sustaining you and what he will do when he comes to bring the new heavens and the new earth. And so our worship is responsive. There's a quote by A.W. Tozer. I have a few quotes today. I was on a quote week somehow. I enjoy quotes. He talks about worship being responsive and not we're worshiping to get something from God. He puts it this way. He says, sometimes I go to God and say, let this be our prayer, by the way. Sometimes I go to God and say, God, if thou dost never answer another prayer while I live on this earth, I will still worship thee as long as I live and in the ages to come for what thou hast done already. God's already put me so far in debt that if I were to live one million millenniums, I couldn't pay him for what he has done for me. We are so far in debt. If God never answers another prayer in your life, you are internally indebted to worship him in response to what he has and is and promises to do for you. Okay, so pure worship is received by God. That is wonderful news. It's never a waste. He is jealous for it. Pure worship is reflective. When we worship God, we become in the image of God, in the image of Christ. We bear the fruit of the Spirit. Pure worship is responsive to what God has done and is doing and will do to redeem all things to himself. Let me end with this illustration, and it probably seems off the mark, but I'll show you how it connects. I might have shared this before. I don't know if I ever not, but it's a, it's a made-up story. It's a story of a pastor who decided to take a Sunday off. He thought, you know, I'm just worn out. I don't want to preach. I just want to relax. And so he decided, you know what, I'm going to call in sick. And so he calls in sick and he drives an hour away to go play golf. And uh, an angel turns to God and says, God, are you going to let this man get away with this? Are you going to let him get away with playing hooky and going to play golf? And God goes, no, I'm not going to let him get away with it. So the pastor um, goes up to the first tee sets his ball, takes a few practice swings, steps up to the ball, swings, and he crushes it. Best hit he has ever had in his life. It flies straight. It flies far. It's a par par four hole, and so it's far. He crushes it. 
He watches it. It hits just before the green, bounces up, rolls on the green, rolls towards the hole, and goes in. A hole in one. Best shot of his entire life. The angel turns to God and says, wait, I thought you were going to punish him. I didn't think you were going to get him, let him get away with this. And God said, I'm not going to let him get away with it. Who's he going to tell? Who's he going to tell? Here's the point. For the man to fully enjoy his hole in one, he needed to sing its praises, right? For this man to fully enjoy this beautiful, amazing, great shot, not arrogantly or what, but he needed to share it with someone. He needed to tell the world what he had done. In order to get full delightment in it, he needed to sing its praises. One reason we worship God, the primary reason is to give God the glory, but one reason we worship God in a constant, contrite, costly, reflective, responsive way in which he receives is because it is in the worship of God. This is kind of heady, okay? It is in the worship of God that we fully enjoy him. It is in the worship of God that we fully enjoy him. And it is in fully enjoying him that we fully worship him. Right? Okay. Let me put, say it one more time, and then I'll read a quote from C.S. Lewis that puts it the same way. In the worship, it is in the worship of God that we fully enjoy him, both Sunday mornings but throughout the week. It's not just singing. It's all of life, right? But it is in enjoying him that we fully worship him. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, and it may not make a whole lot more sense, but it's still good. C.S. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise that what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation, which means completion. Okay? So I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed completion, consummation of our worship. We delight to worship God because it is in worshiping God that our enjoyment of him is made complete. And it is in our completed enjoyment of him that he is most worshiped. Let's pray. Lord, you created us to worship. You created us to delight in you, to rejoice in you. We are so thankful that you receive it. That our worship isn't vain. That it doesn't just go into thin air and disappear. And it's that our worship's not worthless. No matter what our sin is against us, God, you receive our worship by the blood of Christ. Every time it is precious to you. You are jealous for it. We are so thankful, God. We're so thankful that by worshiping you, we become like you and we reflect you to those who see us, God. Lord, we are so thankful that we worship in response to what you have done for us. We don't worship to earn our salvation. 
We don't worship to earn your favor. We don't worship to earn your approval. We already have it through Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we worship in response, God. Help us, Lord, when our hearts are cold, to be warmed by the reminder of your love for us in Christ, of your daily love for us, of your future love for us, of your everlasting love for us. Let our hearts be warmed so we can be molded into pure worship of our Savior, the very place that we find our most delight and that brings you the most praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.